Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by B. John Namadi on June 27th, Lord's Day Service. If you guys don't mind, I'm just going to start talking to you those down to the chairs when you like that. This one's going to go like a whirlwind, and I like the other talks. It's not one I've given very much, so I'm going to be looking at my new lot. But anyway, the topic this time is about Darwinism. And this topic is obviously kind of a hot topic. It's, it's always been sort of a flashpoint. And in my own life, uh, I think it was the Darwinian claims that led me away from a, a belief in God as a Muslim. And when I became a Christian, I thought Darwinism must still be true, but somehow there's an answer to this. It wasn't so much later that, that I basically realized that, and, and as I, I'm going to make the case today, that the Darwinian process and Darwinian mechanism falls under its own weight. Uh, God is sovereign to created the Darwinian type process. It just so happens that that process doesn't work based on the laws of God. Uh, God could have created an evolutionary process, but the Darwinian process doesn't work. That's what I mean. Uh, and we'll see why that is uh, in a bit. So I'm going to start right away with Darwin himself. In 1859, uh, Darwin wrote a book called um, On the Origin of the Species. He did it. Yeah, can we do that? I want to go to video audio. David and I both realize what's going on here. Thanks. That's cool. Um, and the, the, in the book, he proposed a naturalistic method for uh, the origin of species. And this naturalistic method needed to not invoke God. It was very important to Darwin not to invoke God. Even though he ends his book mentioning the Creator, it was he basically said, if this thing requires God, I don't care for it anymore. And but the, what did he what did he base it on was two was a number of principles, but the two really important ones that were the, the sort of linchpin were uh, natural selection acting on random variations. These two he said were sufficient to explain uh, everything that, that we see in, in life. He based his book on his travels to uh, the Galapagos Islands, not too far from Ecuador, and right at the equator, just about 90 degrees west equator. Uh, and uh, in there, basically, he observed uh, some uh, many, many different phenomena, and then he wrote it down. And in, in one of the most famous ones was these finches on these islands, which were, on each island, the finches were a little bit different. And he, he uh, proposed that they, they had a common ancestor, but that the conditions in the islands caused these species to evolve and to become different, and so that they could be more fit for the environment that they were in. This was his basic uh, idea. And uh, at the beginning, it was not very uh, well received. Uh, it was well received by his friends because it evoked a non-theistic explanation. But even they basically said they don't really buy it. They just figure it's a pretty good theory. If it, uh, it's interesting because it doesn't involve uh, God. But in the late eight, uh, 1800s, 19th century, uh, this fellow, whose name is um, Johann Mendel, uh, who was, I think was Czech, but he was in Austria at the time. He was a, uh, a monk, and uh, he did a lot of experiments. Mendel did a lot of experiments in multiple areas, in astronomy and physics. But he also did experiments in genetics, in what we now call genetics, but he's considered the father of genetics, where he basically uh, studied what would happen uh, to the uh, offspring of various kinds of creatures. And he particularly had the opportunity to grow a lot of peas. Peas, you know, in the pod, every little pea is a different instantiation of, of, of parents uh, giving traits to their children. And so he was able to uh, realize that there was a mathematical process going on. These things subject the, are subject to mathematics to some extent. And he, uh, he's the one who basically realized that there are these traits and that you can have, for example, with the peas, you can have the shape of the pea, the color of the pea, where the flowers appear in the plant, 
all of these things, and each one of these, there could be a, what he called a dominant and a recessive version. And the math was that if both parents are dominant in that trait, in other words, they happen to have that trait in its dominant form, then uh, the offspring will have the same uh, trait. If one of them is dominant, one of them not, the dominant wins. And if both are basically the recessive, that one wins because that's all there is. And so they, this, if you work out that math, that means of the four possible cases, two by two, three cases give you the dominant and one case gives you the recessive. And this three to one ratio was like this major kind of a prediction of his view. One of the implications of this was that the process of heredity is actually particular. There's a particles or uh, tokens are, are, are given from parents to children. And, and this token, nobody knew what this token was. There's a, basically now we have a name for it, allele. But what is this thing? You know, what is this token that is passed on? Well, the, the, at that time, the, the, the structure of the cell was not known very well at all. Uh, nobody knew about the cell. And by the late 19th century and early 20th century, and, you know, people were realizing that the cell has these parts. There's a part that they called the nucleus. You could detect that. And there was an acid in the nucleus that they had detected. So they called that the nucleic, uh, nucleic acid. And it wasn't until 1950s where Watson and Crick doing crystallography. This is the crystal, crystallographical uh, map. Uh, which, by the way, I just can't see how you see this. From this, you see that, but th that, that must work with crystallography. I've done a little crystallography, but it's um, pretty crazy. So anyway, from this, they deduced a double helix structure to that thing that was called the nucleic acid. And so this is called the deoxyribonucleic acid with DNA. And, and this was, I realized that this thing contains whatever those tokens are that are passing on heredity. And the nucleic acid has sort of an interesting structure. There is these two backbone parts, the sugar phosphate backbone. And these things essentially are rungs on which you can put these, uh, these base, bases, nucleic bases, nucleotides, uh, that, um, well, the nucleotide is the backbone molecule plus the base. But these bases are come in four varieties. So they, they are. The, the adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine, so A, T, C, G. And every time you have an A, the counterpart has to be a T. Every time you have a G, the counterpart has to be a C. And so if you rip this down the middle, notice that if you know one side, you know the other, because there's only one thing that mates to that. And so um, this thing has a lot of magical, wonderful properties. And, but the, but you know, it was only the beginning of discovering what, what those are. Very shortly thereafter, George Gamow and then Francis uh, Crick himself realized that this, and th these things are coding for something. Uh, just like you know, in a CD, if you looked at it in, under a microscope, you basically see dots and dashes, basically like a Morse code of information. The DNA with those two, the ATCG, are encoding information. It's like a, if it's a long instruction set. And uh, so this was a major discovery. And it turned out that since uh, there are 20 amino acids, it's not too hard to, to work out that you need basically three of these uh, base, bases to, to identify one, uniquely to identify one uh, uh, amino acid. So these are called codons. And so there is this very much of an information-oriented aspect to what's going on in the DNA. So if you think about it this way, uh, you know, Darwin has come up with this mechanistic scenario. Mendel has given us the uh, mechanism of heredity. And I didn't mention, uh, I think his name is Robertson. I forgot exactly what, uh, uh, forget. Um, anyway, somebody after them basically realized that the, when, when Darwin is talking about the, the better, the stronger species wins, that that is really by population genetics. In other words, when you have offsprings that are more fit, they will tend to survive better, and their population grows. And so that's the, the, the numerical or the quantitative metric of fitness, is which one grows most. So that was very good. Then we now find what, that, what, that, what the you know, nucleic acid is, looks like. And now we have also the idea of how the information is, is created. 
And then soon after that, in the, 18, uh, in the 1950s, uh, this experiment by M Miller and Urey showed that those nucleic acids you can make in a flask in which you can create the earlier earth conditions. Just throw in some ammonium uh, and, some, and uh, you know, uh, methane and, and hydrogen and put a spark and there you get all the nucleic acids. And I say that fast because if I say it slowly, uh, you'll find all kinds of problems with it. And that was sort of the mentality of the time. There was a great triumphalism about how everything is being understood. It's all over, you know, just give up. And in fact, by 1959, 100 years after 1859, where Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, there was this major celebration at the University of Chicago, basically the triumphal you know, celebration of the you know, complete you know, vindication of Darwinism and how basically we uh, have shown that this is all correct. So is the problem solved, the problem of origin of species, and does the Darwinian picture uh, really explain biology? That's the question. So everything up to now looks like everything is falling into place and looks great, doesn't it? Uh, all right, so now um, let's take a look at this little video about what's going on with that DNA for a bit. In 1957, Francis Crick first proposed that chemicals called bases along the spine of the DNA molecule function as alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in a machine code. This animation shows how this digital information directs protein synthesis. First, a large protein complex separates the tightly wound strands of the DNA to prepare it to be copied. During this process of transcription, a protein complex called a polymerase produces a single-stranded copy of the original instructions. Here we see this copy, a messenger RNA molecule, being constructed inside the polymerase as individual bases are positioned and added to the growing strand. Now we see the polymerase in action from the outside as it spits out the messenger RNA transcript. Next, this RNA transcript approaches and passes through a molecular machine called the nuclear pore complex, an information recognition device that controls the flow of information in and out of the cell's nucleus. Now we see the genetic assembly instructions on the messenger RNA approaching and arriving at a two-part chemical factory called a ribosome, the site of protein synthesis. As the messenger RNA transcript passes through the ribosome, the process of translation begins. During translation, a mechanical assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids in accord with the instructions on the transcript. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell by molecules called transfer RNAs, which link specific sequences of bases to corresponding amino acids. The sequential arrangement of the amino acids determines the type of protein constructed. When the construction of the chain is complete, it is transported to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape required to perform its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is released into the outer cytoplasm to do its job in the cell. Okay. If you, if you look at that, the first thing that should strike you is, is, is the complexity of, of what we're talking about. When Darwin talked about this stuff, and they knew about cells, but they thought the cell was just a very simple thing, that it's just this blob of protoplasm, and you know, that, that must be, you, know, you just get this like layer of material, a bilipid layer, and somehow the right thing happens in there, and that, that's gonna be a small part. The cell ended up being just, you know, the, the, almost the, the, the biggest challenge uh, to, to Darwinian picture. So we're gonna, we're gonna see these challenges now articulated in a number of, so you can come at this, this theory makes a huge number of assumptions and they are, there is, a, in a number of places, there are fundamental problems with it. So I'm not even gonna exhaust those, but I'm gonna go over a few of the most fundamental ones and then I'm gonna take a deep dive in one part of it uh, inspired by Michael Behe's book called Edge of Evolution. 
The first problem is that that cell and that, that the DNA that we just talked about, that contains information. That's actually what was what uh, Craig, Crick and Gamow talked about. But then the question is, what is the origin of information? Where does information come from? And if you think about it in your experience, information only comes from a mind. Information doesn't come from random processes. So if you were to say, but no, it's possible that these little chemicals were basically coming together accidentally, and, and uh, somehow this something then decided to kind of measure these things as a, as a measure of information, uh, you're, you're, you're just going way out on a limb in terms of, of, of what all the things that what you're saying is requiring. So, um, so this information challenge is actually one of the most fundamental problems. Now, the problem with Darwinism and the Darwinian thinking was they were so enamored with the progress of physics and chemistry by that point that they reduced, we remember that word reductionism, they reduced the biology to physics. And that is a dreadful mistake. Biology is not reducible to physics because biology is all about uh, systems and it's about organization and it's about information also. And so by, if you concentrate on chemistry, you make the following mistake. Uh, here is a picture of a book, right? There's uh, some letters on that, on that page. And I asked you the question, so where, uh, what explains this, this content coming on this book? And you start telling me, well, the ink particles are the electrostatically held into place against the paper. And if there's this process on the laser printer that heats this plastic, and then they're fused to the paper, and I say, oh, good, that, that sounds wonderful. But how do you explain that it starts with the words, my name is Ishmael, you know, uh, or no, call me Ishmael. That's the first uh, sentence in Moby Dick. You know, how do you explain the particularity and the specificity and the meaning? The chemistry doesn't explain it. The ink doesn't care what you do with that ink. The ink and the paper are there. The information is something beyond the ink and the paper. It's coming something entirely different kind. It's a totally different category of thing. So the information challenge was the first thing in the 60s, mathematicians were beginning to realize there's a mathematical problem with this picture of random stuff. Another way of saying it is, is some, now with the computers going so fast, people think about you know, computer experiments of evolution. Invariably, those computer experiments of evolution essentially assume the thing that we're trying to prove. And we don't have time to go into that. But I can challenge to any computer, uh, there's a number of computer scientists in the room, that you know, think about writing an operating system, a small operating system that works on an Android phone, uh, doesn't need to do everything. It just needs to kind of turn on and say, hello world, only using random bits, just, just generate random bits, and keep trying. Uh, run, run that on a blank telephone, uh, uh, cell phone, and see so how long it takes. And you'll find that in practice, random processes are going to be very, very inefficient in finding specified complexity. Um, so the information can't come from randomness. And this was I realized as early as the late 60s. So people went drifting towards something else called self-organization. They said, well, you know, like in a, when you make grow a crystal, you have a molecule that has a particular shape. And it is an affinity for other molecules connecting to it. And so once you start growing, you know, starting with the nucleus of, of this crystal, you can grow the crystal and it will have a very interesting structure like that one. And all you've asked for is the molecule's shape. That's it, nothing else. The molecule will define the shape. And so the same thing could be happening in the DNA. But there's a fundamental problem with that, right? Because if the DNA is supposed to be information, every rung of this ladder is a bit of information. Every one of those is supposed to say something specified, complex, and unique. But if you tell me that the first rung of the ladder requires then that the next rung be, you know, if the first one is A, the next one is going to be a C, the next one is going to be a T, whatever. Well, to the extent that that is true, there is no information in this, in this DNA. Let me put it this way. You, there's an analogy I make. Suppose that you send your child off to college, and your child sends, writes a letter, dear mom and dad, how are you? I'm fine, the weather is good, how's the weather over there? I did my homework this week. Next time they send a letter, they say, dear mom and dad, how are you? Uh, how, I'm fine, how's the weather? I did my homework this week. And every week, 
you notice that as soon as you start reading the letter, everything that they're starting with, essentially the letter just keep going, keeps going the same way. And you ask your child, you know, why does this happen? He says, well, once I write, these, these senses just come to my mind. They're just the natural next thing to put on. So when you get the 13th letter like that, you throw it away. You just say, I know the child is alive. That's good. But there's nothing else in this thing. Because the first sentence determined the entire letter. There is no information in the letter anymore. It's been de predetermined. So self-organization is necessarily self-defeating as a source of information. OK. So another challenge, so we've talked about information organization, uh, information and self-organization. And now we talk about irreducible complexity. This was a book in the late 90s written by Michael Behe. Uh, great, great book. I've never read it, but I think I know all the parts of it because I've been in this debate so long. Uh, but the book basically talks about molecular machines in, in biological systems. For example, the bacterial flagellum, you know, here's this picture there, which is this little uh, corkscrew thing that the, the, that the uh, bacterium can, uh, can turn on and allows it to have propulsion. When, when you look at it like this, it looks like just a little thread and, uh, you know, just something kind of swinging it. Uh, but when you go into the details of what you need to do, you find that that is an electric motor with almost the, right, the same components, you know, a stator, a rotor, a bushings, all the parts you need, and the electrical signals that essentially uh, are oscillating so that the thing would turn. So this is a molecular machine, and if you take any of these pieces out, the thing <clears throat> stops working. So he posited that there are, in any machine, a, a, a place of irreducible complexity. You can take away certain features, but there's, there's a minimum set you need, just like in a mousetrap. You need a, the, the, you know, the board, you need the spring, you need the catch, you need the, the latch thing. And it's about five things. You know, you can, maybe you could have a little LED that kind of makes it look pretty and attracts the mouse. But if you take that out, it'll probably still work. But this minimum, you can't be without. And if for that minimum, all of those things have to be designed at the same time. You can't just make a board and try to catch mouse with it and go, well, now that that caught the you know, mouse, let's try putting a spring on there. Let's see if it catches mice any better. What's a board with a spring going to do to the mouse? You know, and so it basically, you need all of these elements together, and that's an irreducibly complex system. Now, the complexity of this is laughably primitive compared to the complexity of this. And in fact, when Behe wrote this, he himself, I mean, he would have believed it if somebody told him that, but he himself did not, at that point, we didn't know as much as we know after this point, that there are actually little molecular machines that are like little train little uh, cars that go up and down that cilium, bringing in new parts to fix the parts that are broken. And they come back with the broken parts. And they're going back and forth, kind of just fixing this thing all the time because it, it tends to break. And so all of this detail is in there. And, and so the complexity is just you know, staggering. So in a way, uh, this is Michael Behe's own cartoon that um, he put when he gave this talk, is that uh, it's like Calvin and Hobbes. You know, the, Calvin is thinking that if you know, the airplane looks like it's got wings that look like this. So he finds a box, and it's got these flaps. And close enough, you know, he can fly with it. And so, in a way, our, our view of the cell has been like that. Oh, it's just looking a blobby thing. So if you just get a blobby thing, it's a cell. Well, no, the cell is a galaxy. You know, it is, it is so much going on in the cell, as we saw in that video. Another aspect of the cell is that it is organized. And by organized, I mean that it's made out of components which have interdependent function. This component is going to be doing actions on things that it receives. And in turn, this component is going to provi provide actions and inputs to other components. In software, you have functions or module, uh, uh, modules in which the module has inputs and outputs. And you, if you need an, a, you know, uh, a real array or an integer array or a hex, whatever, as an input, it's not going to work. You just get anything and you'll do it's just garbage in, garbage out. In the same way, in an organized system, everything is interdependent. So this is a car, uh, you know, uh, you, you see this is highly organized. All of these hoses and pipes, you know, you start pulling them out. Uh, in fact, that is a way of asking formally, like mathematically, you ask what is the function of this piece? 
you pull it and see what happens to the system. You go, ah, you know, spark plugs apparently do something, so you put it back in. So the, the organized systems are, require explanation. And then they're, because they're coherent together, that explanation, you know, what, if you really uh, think about it, there is no known origin to organization in our experience than the mind. An engineer designed that. An engineer designed this blueprint of a circuit, and that is a plan of, of how blood clotting works in the human body. And it is stupendously complex. It is all these different agents acting on each other, feeding back and testing for this, making sure it's like, you know, if you clot too easily, you're going to have a stroke. If you clot too poorly, you're going to bleed to death. And there's all these agents acting, making sure that none of these bad things happen. And so there's this loop is super, super complicated. And so, so organization needs an explanation, and the Darwinian process offers randomness. Okay. And so uh, that is why, and it, believe me, if, if, they, if, 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 the, if a Darwinian-oriented person can do this in a computer model, they would do it by now. It, you, they can't, because it, there is, it, it just fundamentally doesn't work. You can't define organization that way. So arguments of this type, I think, are real. I think they're potent. And in fact, we have hardly scratched their surface, because these can be quantified. But in the early days when these arguments were put forward, in the you know, uh, late 90s, in my experience, I, I experienced all this from the 90s to the early 2000s, there was a lot of hand-waving, oh, well, you, know, you need to have faith because this thing might somehow produce something. And you're going back and forth, you know, no, it's not reasonable. No, yes, it is reasonable. And so um, I, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I'm going to go ahead and jump right past these, and I'll come back to it in a minute. So Michael Behe wrote a book in which he decided, okay, that's it. We're going to do this by numbers. So he wrote a book on a num numerical edge to, the, to evolution. In other words, let's examine what evolution does, natural selection, random mutation, and then try to set limits to does, does Darwinian processes ever work? And if, and if they work, what is the limit in complexity after which they stop working? Okay, so we'll go into that. And I think on, on um, I have a story here that I missed, uh, looking, not looking at it. The B-29 in 1944 was a very highly organized system, and it was very capable. It was one of the, the, the most advanced uh, you know, planes in the world at that point. During the last um, two years uh, of the war, the, the, some of these crashed in what, it, what was then Soviet Union. Some years later, the Soviets unveiled the Tupolev-4, uh, 1949, and when you look at that thing, the two have quite a resemblance. There, if you look, if you stare at it, there's actually, in a lot of even details, they have resemblance. So the question is, you know, it was pretty obvious that it was a copy of, of, of what, was, what had crashed. Now, imagine if the engineers in uh, the Soviet Union said, okay, uh, Forget about this, this plane, crashed plane as it is. Let's rip it about down to its nuts and bolts and analyze every wire and see what the wires are made of and the bolts. Then we'll figure out what to do next. So they, they bring in a bunch of people to just break the thing down. They pulverize it to pieces. They rip everything out, and they have this big mess of bolts and wires and you know, nuts and rivets and sheet metal. And they said, OK. There it is. And so the scientists come in and go, okay, they used you know, iron here and aluminum there and copper for the wires. Okay, now what? So you just destroyed the very thing you were going to try to analyze. You broke to pieces the thing that you really, the thing that really characterized the airplane wasn't so much the materials. It was how it was organized. What was the, what was the you know, avionics system supposed to be like? How were the airfoils designed? You pulverized it. And so the critique is that in the Darwinian picture, because you're looking so much at the atomistic view, the first thing that the biologist does is they basically put it in a blender and do like you know, uh, chromatography or something on it to find out what all the pieces are. You just destroyed the biology, and now you're beginning to ask the question what the biology is. The biology was there before you destroyed it into its little pieces. The pieces are not really where the biology is. It's in the organization. And so, uh, and we know that when we try to fake, you know, to duplicate planes, but we forget that when we do biology. So going now to, to Michael Behe and this, this topic, 
Behe is uh, talking again about what the edge of evolution is, and he makes a big part of this book, Edge of Evolution, about malaria. Malaria is a disease that every year kills, uh, I think, a million people, and uh, it's a mosquito-borne uh, parasite uh, that the, the, the mosquito basically uh, bites you, and the mosquito is carrying around unwittingly this parasite. So the parasite, the Anopheles basically bites you, you get the parasite. The parasite wanders around, but it knows to find your liver, and it goes into your liver and starts multiplying in the liver. Once it gets nice and hefty in population, it kind of breaks out into your red blood cells. It then goes into the red blood cell and uh, grabs the hemoglobin and uh, breaks it apart, taking all the pieces at once. It digests all the pieces at once. And then it kind of doesn't, there are parts of it it doesn't want, and it wraps those up in little trash bags and then throws them out as waste. Those trash bags are called hemozoin, and it's part, a big part of the story. All right, um, so that's basically what the parasite does, and it kills a lot of people. And we're gonna kind of go into this in some detail. But uh, it was discovered, uh, I think it was in the yeah, 17th century, that a bark of a tree in South America actually is very effective in, in, in dealing with this disease. And, and the Germans discovered, I think they extracted it, it was called quinine, and quinine was given in Africa you know, to help with malaria. And after World War II, the Americans uh, basically got hold of the, uh, some of this process and invented chloroquine, which was a cheap way to make quinine. It's a kind of a replica of, of quinine. And you guys know from COVID, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine is all, uh, well, chloroquine has been in use since the, the 40s, and it's, it's, it's extremely, it was extremely effective against uh, malaria. It was so effective that people thought that this big killer of mankind is finally over. In the 50s, they thought that would be the case. How does it work? Basically, the way it works is that I mentioned that the, the parasite uh, feeds on this um, hemoglobin, I'm going to look at my screen so that it's, it's a little complicated, so I want to make sure I say it right. So the hemoglobin is made out of uh, these, uh, these subunits, each of which has this active part called a heme. It's a, it's a bunch of amino acids that make a sort of a little bit of a device. And this heme can handle something very dangerous called oxygen. Oxygen is very reactive. You know, you can burn things with it. And in fact, nothing in biological systems particularly likes to deal with oxygen unless they have to. And so heme is particularly designed to grab oxygen in an oxygen-rich environment and then let go when it's oxygen poor. So in the lungs, it grabs the oxygen. And then when it comes to you know, your, your cells, it lets it go in the right place. And, and that is used for energy. It's burned uh, in energy. So uh, um, when... Uh, so, but this heme itself, because of that iron, is actually itself toxic to, uh, to the parasite. So the parasite, remember, is grabbing hemoglobin, eating it up, taking all the parts it wants, and then wants to kind of get rid of the part it doesn't want. It has a mechanism to, to essentially wrap all of that up into something called hem hemozoin that is this neutralized. It sort of doesn't have any dangerous parts poking out. And that goes through a pump in the parasite's uh, food vacuole, uh, digestive vacuole, this is stomach. Uh, it basically, through this pump, this, this hemozoin comes out. And the parasite is fine, it thrives, does well. Okay, uh, what chloroquine now does is it gets and mucks up the creation of, uh, basically it, it connects to this heme and and makes it hard to make hemozoin. So this dangerous heme is getting out of control and it's not being put in the safe trash bags that it should be. And eventually this parasite dies essentially in its own waste, which uh, Behe says is a fitting end for this creature. Uh, but uh, so, so that's what chloroquine does when it works. So, um, but it turned out that uh, it was discovered that the, the, the after about 10, 20 years, especially by, actually by the 80s, the reports came that chloroquine has stopped working. And so the people had to try to figure out what happened to chloroquine when it stopped working. And the story is rather complicated, so I had to make a chart like this. So the first part is sort of the bad thing. Parasite, uh, 
in this first row, the parasite is doing the normal thing it does, and everything is happy for the parasite and sad for me. Uh, parasite has to eliminate heme. It bundles it up into hemozoin, and a protein pump removes that parasite, uh, the, the, the waste, and the parasite survives. Okay. Now, chloroquine comes to the scene. It binds to the heme so that the toxic heme ends up uh, building up in the food vacuole in the stomach of this parasite, and the parasite dies because of the toxic buildup. That's a happy thing. Then, uh, <clears throat> here is what then happened. It turned out, and there's a long story behind this, that the mutations, that basically this population of parasites uh, was undergoing mutations, and eventually, through what is essentially a Darwinian process, and this is hailed as one of the successes of Darwin, Darwinian picture, is that the parasite evolved, and actually, um, basically, in the evolution of the, the parasite, what happened was the pump that was supposed to be working to get the waste out it actually developed a complete leak. And so the toxic material that was, that was getting built up in the food vacuole was just basically, oh no, the chloroquine was, getting, was leaking out. Because originally, the, this chloroquine was building in, the way the parasite was working, the chloroquine would go in and would stay there, and the parasite would actually help it increase in number. And this was just a way that this particular molecule could, could fake its way into the food, food vacuole. But then, uh, when, when this pump broke, the chloroquine leaked out. It couldn't be there in enough concentration. So that then, uh, basically, uh, the parasite survives because there is not a buildup of the toxic waste. OK, so this is sort of the sequence of uh, the way the parasite works, the way the medicine was supposed to kill the parasite, and the way the parasite evolved and dodged the, 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 the mechanism of, of hurting it. So this story I basically tell, told you. And so basically now we have to talk about how that happened. What is going on here? So during this process of cell division, there can be errors when the DNA is replicated. So this is a picture of DNA replication and these codons basically. Something splits them and reads them and then makes a duplicate copy. During that copy process, mistakes can occur. And a mistake rate is about 10 to the minus 8. In other words, every 100 million reads, you end up making misreading something or mis miswriting it back. Okay, so, so this happens. And this is Darwin's opportunity, right? This is the place where novel things could occur. The mistake is actually a good thing because, uh, the, for example, this creature can now develop something new that it didn't have before. And what, what that mistake can do is when you have a mistake, that is a mistake in the amino acid you're asking for. Every three codons, every three base pairs is a codon which calls for a particular amino acid. And, you, and there are 20 of them to call for. So you say, I want number 13, but mistakenly you get number six. And that number six, now could it be good? Could it be bad? What does it do? And so the protein now has this number six in that position. Now, a protein is just this chain of amino acids. And these, this chain, as we saw in the movie, then it, the cell essentially folds it up. It first folds itself up a little bit, and the cell folds it up some more, and you get this machine out of this, out of this protein. Now, when the, when the protein has a bad amino acid or a changed amino acid, its folding could be different. It might not fold right anymore. That could be a bad thing. Actually, it almost always is. Or it could be a good thing. And Darwin would say, hopefully, sometimes, it's good. But how often? At, well, the error itself occurs at only one in a hundred million 100, uh, or a billion times. Okay, So um, and it's a damage. It's really the protein. You had a perfectly good protein, and now you damaged it. And here's the first principle, that the, uh, the change is always a damage. Here's a picture of a bridge in Belgium that the, the, the locals basically blew up because they didn't want the tanks from the German, German tanks to come to town. So they survived, but their bridge is blown up. And the Darwinian process is always like this. You blow up something so that you can survive for the day. Then you have to kind of deal with the fact that you've got something blown up. The Darwinian process never creates anything. It always breaks something. Those random mutations never make a new thing. That's the assertion, and we'll see that in a, in a little bit. They always break something that, that helps. Another way of saying it is you've got this long, large population of cells. 
they're under some threat. Somebody put a dashed, you know, uh, a salt shaker all over their, you know, their petri dish. So many of them die, but if the salt is coming in through some method into the body of the cell, then if the cell can kind of break that method, it lives, it, you know, it survives to live another day and try tomorrow, you know. And in this sense, the Darwinian process always is trying to figure out something to break. Another analogy is the thief is, you think there's somebody coming in through the front door, uh, you go ahead and jam something into your door, your bedroom door so that the thief can't come in. Thief does whatever, but you survive. They don't try to come in the door because it doors. And so that's good, but you broke your door. Okay, and that's okay, it's a good, good bargain, but you've never created anything. You've just broken the right thing. And these random processes just break the right, right thing. They don't ever create. Now, there is this big, long, uh, complicated mathematical argument that I'm gonna distill into uh, a few words that I think should be okay to understand. So basically, um, this thing that uh, basically, uh, through evolutionary process, broke in this case, uh, was a protein pump in the food vacuole of this parasite. The parasite, those parasites in which this occurred by random mutation, the pump broke, chloroquine didn't build up, therefore the, the thing survived. But what is the probability for that to occur? And it turns out that uh, from the numbers, it was determined that it turned out that there was a minimum of two proteins, the particular proteins that had to be changed. Each protein is, you remember, there's a 10 to the minus 8 chance to get that protein wrong. To get two of them wrong, it's 10 to the minus 8 of 10 to the minus 8. And that's the minimum. It turns out it's 10 to the minus 20. That means 1 over 10 with 20 zeros in it. That's the probability. Of, of getting two coherent changes in this amino acid change, uh, chain. So um, now malaria is a small little bug. It, there are a trillion of them are in your body. Heaven forbid that you would ever have a trillion of those in your body. But, but that is a sick person that is you know, dying from malaria has a trillion of them in their body. That's 10 to the 12. If, if you think about over 10 years, how many people get that? you multiply that by 10 to the 12, you get a number like 10 to the 20. So it roughly takes 10 years for enough reproductions of this little parasite to get the accidental change necessary to break that pump. All the other cases, that nothing gets broken enough for it to work. But one in, you know, uh, what is that, 100, uh, well, 10 to the 20. Uh, one in 10 to the 20 time, it, it basically works, okay? So uh, this was a big uh, issue of contention because the Darwinian answer to this is no, you only need one change and that already confers to you some advantage and that's only 10 to the minus eight probability and you have 10 to the 12 just in one body so that happens for free. And then among, among uh, you know, those who have the one, it takes 10 to the eight more. If you ask for it like that, it's very easy to get the change. If you need to get both of them, uh, it's very difficult. 10 to the 20 is very difficult to produce. So here is already a major, major problem for Darwinism. Because if you ask the question, how long does it take for uh, P. falciparum, this parasite, to reach t 10 to the 20 number, to just have this one protein change, one break in a protein that sort of confers some advantage, it takes 10 years. But how many mammals have existed? Like, let's say mice in the history of the Earth. 10 to the 20? No way. So, so what happens is, or, or maybe just barely. So what happens is there is, even if you assume a you know, three billion year history of life on the earth, there is not enough time to change any mammal where the reproduction rate, you know, uh, because these, these little bugs, you know, they reproduce at super high rates and their numbers are high. These guys, not so much, and we, much less. So there is no time to, to even change the protein. And by the way, what change? We, it's, there's no time to break the propre, uh, protein appropriately. Remember that the change is always breaking. It's not fixing. And so it's really a big, big part of the story. So time is not the healer of its wounds. Another way of looking at it is that um, this picture is that when you talk about the fitness of an, uh, of an organism, 
the organism is just fine where it is. If, it, if, uh, if, if there's a better condition for this organism to have, if it was supposed to evolve to something better, basically the Darwinian picture was, oh, you know, at the beginning of evolution, the, the organism is here, and every time it, uh, you know, finds a, a by mutation a better uh, thing, it just climbs this hill to ascendancy to perfection, you know, to, to, but in reality, the landscape more looks like this. You're on top of a hill, and then every time in an evolutionary sense you move, you go down because you broke something. And so you never, you go, whoop, that comes back. Now, how does that actually happen? The offspring of the one who broke, like, you know, this parasite with a broken PFCRT, if, if the uh, chloroquine goes away, it doesn't perform as well as its neighbor who didn't have this mutation. So in a population genetics way, it actually go is going to disappear because he's kind of semi-broken. And the other ones are going to be more thriving, essentially. And in the same sense, the population uh, will not go, doesn't, you know, the Darwinian process is supposed to be blind. If you're on this hill and there's a bigger hill ne next to you, the Darwinian process doesn't know it's there. It's blind, right? It's the blind watchmaker, supposedly. So it makes an incursion through mutations and it goes, ooh, that's bad. And everywhere it goes, that, that's bad. So it just kind of hovers right near the peak it's at. It will never optimize. And that's sort of the problem of the fitness landscape. That's another problem. This one is really kind of complicated, but it's a fascinating story. So I'm going to try to say it in a way. It, was, it took me a while to figure it out, too. Um, not figure it out, just figure out what he was saying, is what I'm saying. Uh, basically, um, this has to do with the fact that uh, living organisms do their work through pro proteins. Proteins are the machines, but usually it's not one protein that does something, it's a number of proteins that does, do something together. The hemoglobin has four subunits. Many proteins have many more than that, okay? So that you need this piece and the wheels and the chassis and the you know, drivetrain and the blah, blah. You need all of those for this, for this protein system to work. Now these proteins have to bind together in certain ways. They have to bind together by having complementary shapes where they touch and the polarity. If this has a positively charged ion here and that has a positively charged ion, that won't work. So this one has to be flipped. So this whole thing is called shape space in this abstract mathematical sense that there is all these different interface possibilities between any two proteins. The probability of getting, um, creating the right uh, shape through random mutation is about the same as that malarial uh, resistance, 10 to the minus 20. So that every time you think about a set of proteins, you've got this organism with a set of proteins, and you say, well, through mutations, some of these proteins will learn new tricks and become evolved to something better. Well, how many proteins does your system need? Let's say it needs three. Okay, three things, when you touch three things together, you need two connections, right? This connects to that, this connects to that, three things together. So I need two connections for three things. If I had four things, I'd need at least three connections, et cetera. It's always one less. But every one of those connections has a likelihood of 10 to the minus 20. So if you need one connection, that's 10 to the minus 20. You need 10 to the 20 creatures being reproduced before you get it by chance, this new connection. Now, whether that connection is any good that is another matter altogether. But let's say that somehow it is. Well, if you now need a second one too, that's another 10 to the minus 20. And so for those two to coherently occur is 10 to the minus 40, which Behe calls the edge of evolution. In other words, there are not 10 to the 20, 40 creatures of any kind in the history of this planet. So, so even one new protein, novel protein interaction requires probabilistic resources that never existed on this planet. So evolution never was able to produce these protein connections that we see. It is impossible for it to, to do that through random processes. The story is very detailed, and it's beautiful, actually, when you see the detail. But unfortunately, it's, I can only tell you the uh, example. This is hemoglobin, four subunits. Each one of those four subunits connect to each other. That was that bacterial flagellum. All those protein pieces are interconnecting. It's not three. It's like 20 or 60. 
you know, so it's, it's 10 to the negative 20 to the you know, 60th power. So it's, it's essentially impossible to create that through uh, random mutation. Um, here is the cilium, very similar. Again, you can see how intricate these protein connections are. So what do we take from this? Darwinian processes work. How? They break things. They break things and they confer an advantage to something so it survives for another day. They may work. They may work in that way. So when we talk about bacterial resistance to antibacterial you know, drugs, they work in this way, by breaking something. They never fix anything. And so, so when sometimes you know, you're having this argument, you can actually say, yes, it does work. But it works at a level of just breaking very, very primitive things. Never creative, never creative. It's just fundamentally impossible for it to be creative. And, and because of that, because it's, you know, it's not really a matter of time, because time, what is really happening is not evolution, but devolution. Devolving is occurring. Things are breaking more and more through these mutations that time will not fix anything. If the Earth is 10,000 years old or 10 billion years old, or 10 trillion years old, the longer the age of the life on Earth, the more you can expect everything to have devolved by the laws that are currently in operation in the universe today. These laws will not create uh, new, new things. All right, so um, what do we get from this? Is that we live in a world that is transcendently designed, that, 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 that all of these things that we see are not just design. It's not like, oh yeah, that looks like a machine, like the kind of machines we built. No, they're like the machines that you can't even figure out yet. You, you have, actually, you may never figure them out. They are transcendently designed. They're not just designed. And uh, here Job says, uh, but ask the beasts, and they will t teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, and, and, or the bushes of the earth, they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And this, this biology, even when you go on the molecular level, shows the glory of its creator. And, and no amount of hand-waving of saying randomness and self-organization is going to heal its, the problems of any theory like that. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed, K-I-R-K dot com. <laughs>